If you turn with me to the Word, which is printed in page 8 in your bulletins, we have the whole of 10 verses printed there, but I'll be reading and focusing on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is God's word. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 is uh, salvation primarily from man's perspective, in a sense. And we said that verses 1 to 3 focus on our condition. Paul says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. That's what he says. And in verses 4 to 7, he says, this is God's remedy. If the problem is that we are dead in sin, verses 4 to 7 say, because of God's great love, because he is rich in mercy, God made us alive in Christ. And then he goes to verses 8 to 10, where we're focusing today. He gives us almost a linear perspective of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved, point one, through faith, Point two, lastly, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Those are the three points today. You can't get more straightforward than that. Grace, faith, good works, workmanship, in that order. Any other order, it's going to mess up your life. It's going to ruin your life. You got to start with grace alone, faith alone, created to do good works. Okay, first, we're going to look at grace. What is grace? Grace is receiving goodness, receiving favor that you didn't deserve. When you receive something that you didn't deserve, you'd notice if you experienced that in some smaller way, it would threaten you in a sense. You feel indebted. There's this natural heart's inclination to resist in some ways when it's offered to you because of your sin, because of our pride. Remember, uh, if you're into musicals, Les Miserables, famous. You can't get more famous than Les Miserables, right? You have Jean Valjean. He's an inmate, 24601. He's freed. He's been in jail, in prison. He's freed. Now, this is around the time of the French Revolution, so jails were not humane, and he was tortured in jail for stealing a loaf of bread to feed a hungry family. And he's freed, but he breaks parole. And all through the rest of his life, he's chased by Inspector Javert. So you have Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert. And uh, towards the end of this musical, without giving anything away, Jean Valjean has this opportunity to kill Inspector Javert, but instead, he lets him go. Now, Javert, he's a man of the law. He's a man of morals. He's driven by his morals, driven by the law. And he cannot understand why Jean Valjean, this man that he's been chasing, the bane of his existence, why he would set him free. And so he feels, in a sense, indebted to this man. He feels indebted. In a way, Jean Valjean owns Javert because he's experienced grace, but now that grace is threatening to him. And so what does he say in a very beautiful soliloquy? Essentially, what he says is, this is my life. It's my life to lose. I could die and refuse this grace, and then I really don't have to change. I can continue believing what I can believe. Now, what's he saying? Anytime that you experience real grace, genuine grace, there's a kind of gratitude. There should be. 
There's a kind of indebtedness. There should be. Now, of course, you can hold on to your own life and you can resist. You can resist this grace because then I feel okay about myself. Or else you have to change. You have to respond and, that, and it's going to shape you. Now, uh, Jean Valjean in this musical, he's the protagonist. What does he say? He confesses very early on in the musical after he experiences grace himself. He says, it is my life, my soul belongs to God. I know, he says. My soul belongs to God. There is the indebtedness. There is the, I'm giving up control. That's what he says. Real grace, when it's received, it shapes you. It shapes you. It changes your life. It transforms you. And in the face of real grace, when it's offered to you, it's going to threaten your control over yourself, over your life. What you think makes you right. What you think justifies you. Now, why am I saying this? A lot of people today, a lot of people grew up in the church. They went to a retreat. They're part of Sunday school when they're a child, part of college group. And as just kind of grow in the church, what happens is um, they, uh, they, they view Christianity as this. Uh, I got to serve God. I got to obey. And that's how I feel in. That's how I feel like I belong. And I got to be a part of this kind of uh, community and go along with the way the community mores, so to speak. I got to just obey, right? Because if I serve, if I'm good, this is how I know that I'm acceptable. This is how I know that God loves me. That's what they say. Now, what happens? You're still in control of your life. You still act and you're living as if you are in control of your life. Uh, you haven't changed these deep-rooted sins in your life that other people around you already see. They already know. Now, how do you address this? How do you address that? Are you able to look at somebody here? Are you able to look at somebody here and say, look, I've been saved by grace. My soul belongs to God. What do you think God desires of me today that I may be refusing or resisting to see? Do you have the courage to ask that of somebody in this room? A lot of times we say the opposite. We kind of, or we think the opposite. We say this, well, I have lots of gifts. Why am I not being noticed? I have lots of gifts. I'm a wise person. I've relied on my wisdom for years. I'm an educated person. I'm theologically astute. But are you self-aware? What are you doing? A lot of times we're boasting. Verse 9, what does the Apostle Paul say? It is grace, faith, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace says this. Grace says the problem is not that you lack gifts, but you're relying too much on your gifts. And so you can't stand being wrong, especially about yourself. So you get that you're sinful, but you can't stand when people point out specific sins about yourself. Real grace says this. Real grace, when you experience it, real grace, when you encounter it, says this. I have to give up control. I have to admit that uh, I'm placing too much weight on the wrong things and not enough weight. I'm blaming all the wrong things. I'm not putting enough weight on the right things. And I'm placing too much weight on the wrong things. 
The real problem is very deep-rooted, very nuanced, and I can't fix it. I can't even see it on my own. And even if I admit certain acts of sin, certain things that I'm doing wrong, I haven't repented. When you do that, you know, when you don't repent, it leads to uh, a greater self-deceit. It leads to a greater pride. That's what happens. Um, It leads to blaming people, a lot of manipulation, um, because it's self-deceiving. Right? So sometimes we don't even realize that we're manipulating other people. What are you doing? You're trying to stay in control. You're fighting for control. Friends, there's nothing that dishonors God's grace. And there's nothing that actually leads you to quickly lose respect of other people more than your pride and your failure to repent in a community of grace. There's nothing. To repent is to give up control. And if you haven't done that, that's why you're not changing. Because a lot of times we say, I don't understand why I'm not changing. It's like you're spiritually uh, constipated. You know, there's this bloatedness. There's, you're feeling stuck. Because you know, but you don't know. Because to really get that God loves you and accepts you because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin personally, to admit specific sin, and that you're only accepted by God's sheer grace, that there's nothing, no work, so that no one can boast. It's threatening. It almost feels like it's going to kill you because the world, we're so led to not, to act counter to that. It's very counterintuitive, but once you receive that, it saves you, you see, and it gives you new life. It shapes your life. It transforms you. Verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved. Now, the second part, Paul says, through faith. In other words, grace initiates faith. God's grace leads to faith. It's not the other way around. It's not you exercising faith to receive God's grace. That'll ruin your life. We can go into that another time. Remember, Paul says, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Remember Sleeping Beauty, famous fairy tale, the real fairy tale, uh, Sleeping Beauty? You have a princess, the princess in her own palace, kind of like Beauty and the Beast, right? The princess and the palace, they fall into a, a deep sleep, a death sleep, is what it says, because of this great curse. But a long time later, you have a prince that comes from a foreign place, falls for this princess, and what does he do? With a kiss, she's awakened. Now, grace is that kiss of the soul in the midst of the death sleep. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. Grace is the kiss of the soul that awakens us. The Bible says every soul is cursed in our sins, cursed in our transgressions. And as a result, we're all in this death sleep. But Paul says in verse 8, this is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, meaning that we are incapable of waking ourselves up. We are incapable of removing or reversing the curse on our own. But what we need is a prince. What we need is a prince, the great prince, who will kiss us. The kiss of grace. It's the kiss of grace that awakens our faith. It breaks the curse. It awakens us up from our death. And Paul says, we are dead in our transgressions, verses 4 to 5, but because of his great love, the love of the prince, because of his great mercy, his rich mercy, God made us alive with Christ. God's grace awakens us to faith. What is faith? Faith is the senses, that inner spiritual sense, the consciousness, the awakening because of God's grace. 
God's grace awakens us. Now, some of us were saying here, you know, I want to believe. We have a lot of people in this room who say, I want to believe. I, I, I want to believe, but I don't believe. What do I do? If you want to believe, what does verse 8 say? Through faith, this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. In other words, even that desire that I want to believe, even that desire, if it's genuine, it doesn't come from yourself. We're dead. We are dead in our sins. So what do you do if you don't believe right now? You got to commit yourself. You have to submit yourself. Practice that. Give up control. If you're not ready for that yet, then commit to reading about it. Commit to connecting with community about it. Commit to studying it. Commit to seeking God in it. Why? Because to even want to believe, if it's genuine, it's only initiated and can be initiated by God. Grace enables faith. Grace initiates faith. you got to work it out. In a sense, uh, what you're saying is, I've experienced grace and it's threatening me. And so now there's this battle in my heart. I'm battle for control right now. Real faith leads to seeing with genuine eyes the prince receiving the kiss real faith leads to marrying the prince you get that so commit yourself to that if you don't believe right now now the first two points they show us who we are and who we are drives us always in what we do who you are always drives what you do god has to do something in you you need new life you need new nature that's grace that's faith new creation new nature it goes against all modern convention, all modern thinking, because modern thinking says what? You guys ever see Batman Begins, the Christopher Nolan version? Rachel Dawes bumps into Bruce Wayne. He's in a hotel coming out, carousing with these uh, models out of, out of the hotel. He's all wet, right? And he's walking out, and, and Rachel Dawes bumps into him. And Bruce Wayne says, this isn't me. This isn't really me. What does Rachel Dawes say? This is modern thinking, modern convention. Deep down, you may still be that same great kid you used to be but it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. That's modern convention. In other words, there's no such thing as a nature because we're just chemicals. We're just molecules that have randomly collided. We've been saying this, right? And as a result you know, of some circumstance or chance or chaos, there's no real nature. There's no such thing as a human nature. What you do defines you. Who cares about what you believe? What you do is what defines you. That's what modern convention says. Christianity says the exact opposite. What you do, what you experience, your background affects you. Your background may influence you, but it never determines you. It never defines you. Who you are always drives what you do. So either you're an accident and there's no design and there's no nature, or God in his sovereign plan, in his sovereign grace, created you and has given you a new nature. And when you encounter that new nature, when you honor the lifestyle of that new nature, there's the true discovery of who you are. That's self-discovery, genuine self-discovery, the true discovery of yourself. If you believe you're an accident and there's no real nature, then it's up to you to define who you are by what you do. And that's going to drive you to work, 
That's the source of our anxieties because a lot of times we're rooted in what we do. And if you feel like a failure, then you're just, you're just filled with self-hatred, self-loathing, and you just want to either run away or it's going to make you incredibly proud and arrogant. And when you fail, it's going to make you self-loathing, self-hating, or you're going to be hating other people. You see how that works, right? If you believe you're a sinner and it's only by grace that you've been saved through faith, if you're going to grow in love, you know you can't just be a nicer person because it's not going to last, and it's not real, it's not genuine. You need to be made new. You need a new nature, the nature of real love in you. And the Apostle Paul, in this beautiful depiction of God's love through Christ, in Christ, for all of Ephesians chapter 1, shows you that new nature that is in you. We are in Christ. We are grafted in Christ. We are in union with Christ. And so we're at this part in chapter 2 where he says, if you're going to grow to be like Christ, you need a new nature in you. You need the nature of Christ in you, and God gives it to you. Paul says, this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. You receive it. It doesn't take any work to receive something, you see. Everything else, you need to work for it. Here, what is grace? It takes no work. You receive. It is the gift of God. That's the first two points. Grace through faith. The third point is verse 10, the last point. He says, for because we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, you can't say, I believe, and then disregard the need to change in character. That's not how it works. If anything, we all behave based on what we really believe. If you don't believe that God has created you, given you, brought you in Christ, saved you, redeemed you, forgiven you of your sins, chosen you, adopted you as sons, that's all of chapter 1 in Ephesians. If you don't believe that, then you're believing something else. And anything else is going to force you to create, you to do, in order to define who you are. You see that? We're all going to behave based on what we really believe. If it's up to you, you're going to live according to what you believe is right. You're going to live according to, regardless of what Scripture says. But if you believe that you are adopted as sons, redeemed and forgiven of your sins, your soul belongs to God. It's going to shape you and change your life, transform your life, because we are grafted, we are brought in union with Christ. We've been talking about that for about a month now. And Paul says in verse 10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, there are two things that always result from grace and faith. One, we, are, we become God's workmanship. And two, as a result of that, we are created to do good works. You know what workmanship is? Let's start with that. Workmanship comes from the Greek word poema. Which is where you get the word poem. Now, it's really deeper than the word or richer than the word poem. It's like a song. We are God's poem. We are God's song. But it's really, we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. If, you go to, if you've ever been to the Philadelphia uh, Museum of Art or the Barnes, you're going to see, at least what I think, an incredible collection in both museums, one of the best collections collectively of impressionist art, I think, in the world, personally. Now, let's say you go to the barns, right, and you look at this beautiful Monet, or you look at this beautiful Renoir, and you, you pull out your pocket knife, and you put a tear through it. 
don't ever do this, okay? But uh, if you ever want to come back, don't ever do this, okay? Now, who can restore that painting? Or you go there and you take out your little uh, watercolor brush and you paint a mustache on one of the... Now, that's, don't ever do this, but okay. Now, who can restore that painting? What's it going to take to restore that painting? You're going to need somebody with the heart of the artist, somebody who studied that artist, somebody who knows that artist. You're going to need, it takes tremendous amount of discipline and skill. You're going to need somebody, an expert over years and decades who studied that piece of art to know every little dot that was placed there intentionally. Tremendous focus, tremendous intensity, tremendous wisdom and caution and care and time. The Bible says what? That's what God is doing to anyone through grace, through faith, who believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You are that work of art. You are a beautiful reflection of the image of God, a mirror image that has been shattered. It's going to take tremendous amount of precision, and God is oh so precise. Tremendous amount of just decades and years, and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit working in you who knows the heart of the Father, who knows the Creator, intimately, the most intimate, is going to have to go there and work on you, pixel by pixel, dot by dot, to to make sure that that masterpiece is restored. You see that? You are that work of a beautiful, valuable expression of that great creator's heart, but you're broken in sin. It's not like God just woke up and said, you know, uh, I think I'm going to create some art, and then he created you. It was not on a whim like that. It didn't work like that. And when you sin, it's not like God said, oh, I messed up. Uh, go back to the drawing board. I'm going to start over. C.S. Lewis says this, God, as an artist, he's persistent and he's venerable and he's exacting. That means that he does not waste a single stroke on his masterpiece. That means he sweat in restoring you. That means he bled in restoring you. That means he's weeping in restoring you. He put his heart, he put his life into you to restore you. That's God's love for his people, his church, the whole of his church. What does that mean? A couple of things. It means a couple of things. One, God is not finished with you. Don't be discouraged. You're not changing. You want to change. You think you came up with that desire to want to change on your own. There was a period of time before you knew Christ. You never wanted to change. You didn't know you needed to change. God is not finished with you. He's very precise. That means, that, it, that means there's no waste of time. That means if you're a Christian, you are definitely maturing. You used to be anxious. You used to be distrusting. You used to be desperate. You used to be unwise. You used to be angry. But if by God's sheer grace through faith, you are a Christian, you're going to change. You are changing. God is using, we just walked through this passage last, last week. We talked about God's use of history. God's used of all of your experiences. A lot of us, you know, we just want treatment. That's, that, that's the problem. We just want treatment. We don't want the cure. We just want the treatment. So you go to church. You go to community group. You feel pretty good. You feel assured. You feel blessed. But you're resisting change. That's where the spiritual constipation is. You're flooded. Your tank is flooded. I know it's kind of, you had lunch already, right? I mean, where your, your tank is overflowing. The doctor says, you know, the way you're living right now, you're asking for a catastrophe. 
You're going to have to cut this out. You're going to have to cut that out. How do you respond? Well, who are you to tell me this? What do you know about my life? Do you know me? You don't know my heart. You don't know my intent. Friends, you don't need to. If you believe that you're saved by grace through faith, you're not only open to change. You're not only open to hear. You're not open to receive. You're going to apply. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna put it into your life. In other words, if you are resistant to change, you're resisting the very thing that God died for. There's nothing that dishonors the love of God and the grace of God more, right? I mean, he didn't just die. Jesus didn't just die. And I don't want to sound um, casual about this. God, Jesus Christ did not die just to make you feel better about yourself. He bled for your holiness. He bled for your glory. There's nothing that God wants more. You can escape it. You can excuse it. You can blame shift away. You can run from it, hide from it, not be grateful for it all your life. And you can fool everybody in this room. But know that God did not die just to make you feel better on a Sunday. He bled for your holiness and your glory. There's nothing that God wants more than for you to be holy today, right now. But if we're just self-deceived, but if I'm just, if I'm really dead, how do I know what God wants? Here's the answer. Community. Wise people who are near you. But they don't really know me, know me, you know? I mean, this is a young church. They don't really know me. What right do they have to speak into my life? Does your soul belong to God? Have you given up control in your life? What right do you have to say that God's people have no right to speak into you? You see that? That's the first part. You're changing. The second implication here is that if God is working in you, he is working equally in others. He can work in other people. You can hope for other people. And that, that speaks to me because I'm often a very skeptical person, almost a cynical person. Yeah, that means that your community, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, not to one individual per se. You have to look at this from a church context. So what Paul's saying is that you as a church are God's masterpiece. You are a work of art. What that means is that your community, your friends are God's masterpiece. What's your responsibility in that? What does it mean to be a good spouse? What does it mean to be uh, a good friend? What does it mean to be a good parent? Your job is to mine the beauty, to mine the gold from that rock, from that ore that you see in that other person. Your job is to mine that gold, to mine that beauty. That's the responsibility of real friendship. That's the responsibility of true marriage. That's the responsibility of a good parent. On one hand, you've got to stop the criticism. You've got to stop the, the gossip. You've got to stop putting more tears into the artwork. Okay? On the other hand, you've got to stop avoiding speaking truth. You've got to stop avoiding that. Neither are humble, neither are good, neither are honorable. 
from a biblical context. God uses us as instruments. God uses us as tools. God uses us as agents of change. His work through us, he's chosen to use in the life of the church to address our sins, but he's very precise. He's very cautious. He's very careful. He's an artist, a skilled, wonderful artist. So I want you to think that way, speak that way, carve away like the wonderful sculptor that God is. Three, if God is the artist, we are the canvas, we are the clay. Some of us right now are feeling the chisel. Some of us right now are feeling the hammer. What's God doing? You have to remember this. You have to trust this. God is shaping you by chiseling away, removing parts of you that no, don't need to be a part of God's workmanship, right? What he desires. That means every little corner, you're saying, no, no, I want that little piece, right? God is the artist. Every corner, every scrap, he does not waste. He's very precise, God is very precise. Your troubles and your suffering and your conflicts and your experiences, none of those things are accidents. Everyone has meaning. Now, I don't want to demean nor diminish the amount of suffering that some of us in this room may be going through, okay? But the providence of God says that he's using everything, even history, to shape you. And he's bringing true beauty out of all of these messes. He's bringing true beauty through, the true glory through these messes. How do you know this? Look at the cross. You have to look at the cross. When you look at the cross, what do you see? When you look at the cross, you see what? Jesus Christ, holy. Jesus Christ, perfect. But on the cross, he received the hammer of God's wrath the hammer of the wrath of God, the penalty for our sins. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, this great artist has abandoned me, left me. And there is nothing like this great tear that went into Jesus on the cross. He's been, his soul has been ripped apart because on the cross, the father abandoned the son, which means that wonderful, the perfect masterpiece has been torn apart on the cross. God has forsaken him, the great artist he's saying the great artist is smothering me with his wrath why so that he could smother you with his love his bleeding love that great artist has abandoned me why so that that great artist could be present in you to make you his work his life work on the cross you see the sweat and the focus you see the blood you see the tears you see the time you see the intensity, and you see the misery, and you see the brokenness. Why? Because even out of this great misery, this great brokenness, this great suffering and death, God brings out real beauty, even a greater beauty, the, beauty, the greater beauty of Christ. Jesus Christ is perfect and holy, and yet in his suffering and misery and death, you see an even greater beauty for all to see through the suffering, through the brokenness, through the death, and if he did that, he did that, what came from that? Salvation offered to all of God's people for that. And if God can bring out that kind of beauty through the suffering and the misery and the brokenness and the death of Christ, surely he can bring out goodness through your suffering and your misery 
and your brokenness, can he? Do you trust that? Jesus Christ on the cross, in his brokenness and his suffering, God brought out an even greater beauty to Christ and the greatest beauty for all the world to be offered. And yet, do you know, in his suffering, he still sang. He still sang while he suffered. Recited Psalm chapter 22 on the cross. While he was suffering, he was reciting scripture. He was putting his heart and his soul into his artwork. And to know that he was reciting scripture, look at the peace of Christ. Look at the, in his brokenness, look at the confidence of Christ. Jesus Christ offered his soul to God, still trusting. Jesus Christ still resilient in his trust in the Father in the midst of his brokenness. And he did that for us, for you, for God's church. It was all part of his design. To say that he was singing, there's the work of an artist. It's all part of his design. Not a single minute was taken out of his design. Jesus Christ broken and marred, and he became sin to make us glorious and beautiful in his righteousness. That doesn't come from me. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You want beauty? You want glory? You want holiness? You want love? You can't do it by being nicer. Not on your own. You need to be made new. You need the love of Christ. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need the glory of Christ. You need the beauty of Christ in you, in your nature, changing you, changing your nature. Do you know this? Because if you do, that means that God is working in you, and you can have hope for others if you know that. If you believe this, you're going to let this shape your life. To the degree that, to the extent that you believe this, you're going to let this shape your life. If you believe, you may not understand why suffering is in your life, And there may be certain sufferings that we will never understand in our lives, but you can trust that what feels like a chisel, what feels like a hammer, is being held in the hands of a great artist who knows you, is laboring and sweating and bleeding. In fact, he bled and he sang for you. God has come. The prince has come. Kissed your soul awakened your spirit to new life, given you faith to connect with his son. So look to the son. Look to the cross. Everything that you've been given, Paul says here in this passage, in this entire chapter, has been given to you by sheer grace to turn you into his song, to turn you into his poem, to turn you into his masterpiece as a church so that you, he says, so that you are doing what God has already called you to do, in advance, prepared you, prepared for us to do. That means in your relationships, at work, in your homes, you are put in a very unique place in every one of those areas in your life right now. Students in your schools, parents in your homes, you are in very unique positions. No one else has been called to be in those positions. For God, as you as in his workmanship, you are created to do good things there, to restore this wonderful handiwork of God, the masterpiece of God, his people, his children. Look to Christ. Broken, laboring, suffering the wrath of God and death for you. There is the cure for sin. There is the cure for death. 
You've got to take it in. It's the gift of God. Take it in, and you can rise and respond in faith in your good works. Grace, faith, good works. That's the only order that will save and shape you in maturity and growth and intimacy in Christ. If you go the other way, it will ruin your life. Simple order. If you even flip-flop any of those words, it will ruin your life. Grace, faith, workmanship, created to do good works. Let's pray.